It's the 3rd of June, 1993. An Arca Airlines DC-8 aeroplane is making its final descent to Miami International Airport, Florida. The end of a two and a half thousand kilometer journey from Bogota, Colombia. Inside the cabin, the captain and his co-pilot complete their final checks. The landing gear is released from the wheel well. The airport comes into view. The plane is carrying some precious cargo, flowers freshly picked and on their way to the wholesalers and markets of southern Florida. But there's something else on board that nobody is aware of. Me. I climbed into the wheel well before the plane took off and held on at 30,000 feet. At 6 a.m., the plane touches down, skidding to a halt on the hot runway. It taxis to its final stopping point, and a flurry of workers step out from the shadows of the cargo terminal, ready to unload. Then, as the safety blocks are placed around the wheels, the stowaway can't hold on any longer. It's an ungraceful exit, as his semi-frozen body slumps onto the tarmac. I don't remember much. I was in and out of consciousness, but I was alive. My name is Juan Carlos Guzman Betancur. Well, actually, I'm an actor. But the things I say and the words I use, they are all real. All taken from real accounts and interviews. And my name is Daryl Brown. I'm a journalist and a podcast maker. And back in 2020, I began a journey to find the boy who fell out of that plane. Because that boy, well, he went on to become one of the most extraordinary thieves the world has ever seen. Yes, I'm a criminal, but there's much more to me than that. Juan Carlos is an enigma. He's stolen from Las Vegas headliners. He's posed as royalty. He's escaped from prisons, and he's smuggled his way into more than 50 countries. And nobody knows how or why. He uses false passports, different aliases, speaks several languages. When the guest came back to the room, they noticed a couple hundred thousand dollars was missing from the safe. People's lives can get shattered on the back of what this man did. I spent my life traveling the globe. First class, of course. But the thing they say about me, it is not how it is. The police, they are stupid. In this podcast series, I want to find out as much as I can about this fascinating international con man. How does he do what he does? And why does he do what he does? Along the way, I'll tell you his story, the things I already know, and everything else I'm about to find out. And, with the help of an ex-metropolitan police detective, I'll go in search for the man himself. It's a journey which will end up taking me two years. Um, Herr Juan Carlos ist hier oder nicht? Oder nicht. said so he can't say it's a secret. But he left some months ago. I promise you've never heard a story like this before. So come with me as I try to track down one of the world's most elusive con men. Don't waste your time. There's no way you're going to find me. From what's the story sounds, this is Con Juan. Episode 1, Skyfall. 
So come on then, Christian, what was the biggest case you've ever dealt with? I'll give you an example of, of uh, my most memorable case, and it is a pretty big case. It was a, a guy that would, uh, would, would burgle hotel rooms in the West End. When I first heard about this story, I didn't know quite what to make of it. I was sitting in a hotel lobby opposite a former Metropolitan Police detective called Christian Plowman. And Christian was telling me about the most memorable case that he's ever worked on. And we had a case that we, we couldn't really make head nor tail of. It was a guy that would go into hotel rooms and he would pose as the guest, get the security staff to open the safe for him. He'd just help himself to the contents and then leave. Juan Carlos Guzman Betancourt is his name. Uh, that's his real name. So he's a, he's a Colombian, Colum Colombian guy. Over a beer, Christian told me about this case from 20 years ago. It sounded pretty benign to start with. Your run-of-the-mill thief and some missing money. A Colombian guy who robs countless times in London and what, everywhere else in the world as well. He's done stuff all over the world. The US, Canada, Ireland, uh, Russia, Japan, France, um, and, and who knows where else. The, the guy is a very, you know, he's a very special, very special criminal, I have to say. But the more he told me, and the more far-fetched the details of the case became, the more fascinated I was. I mean, this dude has led the most amazing life you can imagine. Have you got any idea where he is now? No idea, man. No idea whatsoever. An hour and a few more beers later, Christian and I decided we were going to try what various police forces around the globe had failed to do. We were going to find this thief. So you want to find this Juan Carlos dude, do you? I'd like to sit down with him and have a cappuccino and uh, just say, just ask him why why he does what he does and what does he get out of it and you know, what's his what's his motivation, maybe what he's been up to. I had no idea what I was getting myself into or that it would take quite so long. But Christian and I didn't want to just find him. We wanted to understand him and not just the practicalities of what he does, being able to switch identities at the drop of a hat or fake official documents. We wanted to know what choices he'd made to set him onto this path, and behind all of his lies and con artistry, who he really is. And so, like most good stories, this meant starting at the very beginning. Noticias de última hora. Autoridades en Miami piden ayuda después de encontrar a un joven escondido en el tren de aterrizaje. I remember really good that I was driving uh, home from work and I was listening to Caracol, which is a Colombian uh, radio station. This is Jairo Lozano. He's a Colombian-American who lives in Miami. And they were asking, or they were talking about a kid that came in and the uh, wheel wheel uh, the, of the plane as a stowaway. And he survived uh, the three and a half hours from uh, Colombia. And they were looking for someone to take care of him. He said that he was about 12, 13 years old. Pyro is a police officer, and he was back then too. He's served the city of Miami for three decades. It's taken me nine months to track him down. Phone calls, emails, nothing worked. But undeterred, 
I took a trip out to Miami, found a few listings for Lozano's living in the city, and began to knock on doors. Persistence paid off. Now we're sat, late at night, on his patio, talking about the day that changed Jairo's life forever. And I straight went to the airport. I called the radio station and told them uh, that I was interested in taking care of the kid. Jairo relaxes into his chair, the memories coming back to him. It wasn't his job to take in a stowaway, but that day in November of 1993, something compelled him to be the Good Samaritan. The boy who had fallen out of that plane had apparently survived the freezing temperatures of 30,000 feet. He'd been rushed to hospital, but by the following morning, much to everyone's surprise, he was sat up and talking. It was kind of hard to believe that a juvenile will survive, uh, but at the same time, juveniles are more stronger than and thinner than a regular person. It turns out that surviving in the wheel well, well, it has happened before, but it's incredibly rare. So rare that I could only find one other surviving stowaway who had made that sort of a journey. Nevertheless, here Juan was. He say, hi, how's everything in Spanish? And I go, hi, how are you? It was hard to talk to him and, and get him something out of his mouth. That's the way we knew him. Shy. Juan spoke about the first time that he met Jairo in the only interview he's ever given, over a decade ago. He took me in his car. If I remember right, it was a Cherokee. He asks me several questions inside the car, but I've always been very quiet, shy. And I ask him if he have eating, he goes, no. So I took him to a restaurant and um, we ate. He didn't say that much just his name and things like that. And I, I asked him if he was happy to be in the United States. He goes, yes, very much. The new arrival sat in the passenger seat of Jairo's car, munching on a hamburger and taking in the sights and the sounds of America. I remember there were palm trees and a lot of plants outside. Uh, and they were typical Americans. He was quiet and uh, surprised, I guess. But I keep asking his name. Now that I remember, I ask him his name. He goes, Juan Carlos Guzman. And I go, where are your parents? And he goes, They're, they die in a car accident back in Colombia. And um, he goes, so are you sure you have no family members there to take care of you or anything like that? He goes, no. And I go, what about United States? He goes, no, I don't have anybody here. And I go, okay. Then after he finished eating, we went home. Jairo lived on the south side of Miami with his wife, son and daughter. I remember inside was Bertha and the son. And then Susan arrived. They greeted me, made me sit in the living room. They asked me how I felt. My wife, uh, back then Bertha, um, she was surprised because she, she did not expect him to be that tall. I have called her and told her about it. She goes, okay, bring him here. And uh, when she saw him, he goes, he's not 13 years old. 
This kid is taller and he's bigger than, than 13. There's something wrong in the, the whole story. Juan Carlos Guzman had told airport officials he had no family and nowhere to go. He'd given the name Guillermo Rosales and said he was 13. He was undoubtedly an illegal immigrant. As an adult, he would be sent home on the very next flight. But because he was just a child, things weren't so simple. So until everything got figured out, Juan Carlos was free to make himself at home, at Jairo's house. The only thing I did there was sit in a room in the back and watch TV and I spent all day there, watching mostly Disney videos. I took him to the store and um, we started buying him clothes and uh, jeans and shorts and things like that. We went and bought some shoes and a sweater from the University of Miami. It was green with the orange U on its chest. Word of the miracle stowaway quickly spread. He was on every, every newspaper. As a matter of fact, the second or third day that we were home, when I was ready to go out of work, I stepped out. Across the street was full of uh, news media. And it was incredible. Trucks from everywhere with satellite this and things like that. I go, well, I guess he's famous. He will say, pop. Why is so much news media and I go, because you came in on a plane and that's hard to believe. I heard something about the story on the news because it was big news. This is David Iverson, an immigration lawyer who has worked his whole career in Florida. Back then, he was living not too far from the Lozanos and was immediately struck by the tale. A community representative slash a media person, Fernando, uh, called me and said, you know, um, I can get you connected with this guy uh, to represent him. And so we met and I represented him. David has seen it all, from illegal aliens arriving by boat, using false documents, even trying to sneak past airport security. But this case, a boy hiding in the mechanisms of a cargo plane, well, that was something new. I took it at face value, um, and especially after I met him. He's a very convincing person, and uh, he, I thought it was some sort of miracle or other that he wasn't frostbitten or what have you, um, and, you know, suffered no ill effects from the, the flight. But uh, I thought, well, yeah, this guy's really got guts, and I wanted to help him find some way to be able to stay in the United States legally and permanently. At that time, I was married to a Colombian and I was trying to uh, quite candidly ingratiate myself with the Colombian community because you know, that was my wife's nationality. And, and also, uh, there's a big Colombian community in, in Miami. I wanted to help. You know, it wasn't uh, a cold-blooded publicity, business-for-me type of a thing. Uh, I sympathized with him. David agreed to take Juan Carlos's case on. He would look for any loophole, any reason that would allow the brave, intrepid stowaway to stay in America. Meanwhile, Jairo and his family, they wanted to know more about the boy they'd invited into their home, 
But the more they learned, the stranger things became. How do I say this? He was not... He was acting weird, okay? During the nights, he would sleep at a home, but somehow he would sneak out. We look around and he wasn't home. And he disappears from me like two or three days. I walked out the door and went for a walk. I walked, I walked, and I walked. And when I was going to return home, I couldn't because I didn't know how to get back. And I go, where are you? Oh, no, just driving, walking around. And I go, oh, okay. What did you do this uh, during these two or three days? And he will say, nothing, just walking. I go, okay. So things start getting weird. Midnight strolls, AWOL for days. Juan Carlos wasn't behaving how Jairo would expect a traumatized boy in new surroundings to behave. But while Juan was acting weird, well-wishers were keen to make him welcome. In fact, complete strangers were clamoring to be a part of the Juan Carlos carousel. People start uh, calling me to find out if I need any help with him or things like that. And I go, no, he's doing fine. A lawyer from Texas, uh, he flew from Texas down to Miami and he was receiving the orders of a lady, a wealthy lady from Texas, to help him out with money. In other words, to open an account uh, on my name so I will be his representative. And I remember that was $10,000. Back then, there was a lot of money. That, that was a lot of money. From people turning up with food parcels to well-wishers gifting tens of thousands of dollars, there was even a bid to adopt Juan. It seemed that his story had captured the imagination of Florida, if not the whole country. Hira says he didn't touch the money. There was so much goodwill that he didn't need to. We went to uh, a place that they sell uh, men's suits and kids and things like that, and we bought him like, I think it was two or three suits. And the lady at the store knew about him by the news media. And she offered her the uh, suits to be half price. He seemed like a, a decent kid, good-looking kid, uh, quiet, respectful, um, you know, the type of person you would want to help. Um, that's how he, he came off. And that's why the community opened its arms to him and gave him bicycles and gave him contributions and people wanted to adopt to him, all those things that you know about. I mean, he, he was a real charmer. <laughs> On one occasion, just a couple of weeks after Juan Carlos had arrived, a beachside hotel invited the Lozanos and their new charge to visit for the day, to take a swim and be pampered. It was a gift from the Fontainebleau Beach Resort for the Colombian boy who had been through such an ordeal. He was with us and all of a sudden he disappears. And he was inside the, uh, the building, the uh, hotel. Juan Carlos had made his way into the main hotel building. He struck up a conversation, moved effortlessly through to the residence quarters, smiling politely as he went. An hour or two later, 
Juan Carlos emerged with a fistful of American dollars and a gold chain around his neck. Then where do you get that? Oh, I found it. Juan Carlos was having the time of his life in Miami. But as an illegal immigrant, his stay would only be short-lived unless his new lawyer, David, could pull some strings and make a case for him to remain. I mean, there's a whole variety of uh, statuses you can have to enter the United States legally. I mean, he didn't have any of them. Um, so he was illegal and had no legal right to be here. I was hoping that because of his notoriety that, you know, the immigration service would be willing to um, give him a break as well. But before we ever filed anything, he started getting himself in trouble. Bertha started getting uh, her jewelry disappeared. Jewelry disappeared? Yeah, jewelry disappeared from the house, from where she put it. Every time she looked for something, she couldn't find it. She says, I stole some jewelry. She even accuses me of stealing a gun. That's not true. My question is, what am I going to do with the gun? I gave him the benefit of the doubt. That's what happened. I gave him the benefit of the doubt. Things have started disappearing from the house. Like toolbox. Uh, I would go to the uh, patio looking for something and it was gone. And he said that he haven't touched it. And I will argue with uh, Jair, my stepson, and with Susan and Bertha. He goes, last time we left it, we left it there. Nobody here is going to take something um, out of the house. And what happened that he was taking things little by little, and he was selling it. Selling it for money. Selling it for money. It looked like the stowaway was also an opportunist thief. Then, just a month after his arrival, he was arrested. His crime, he was found to be carrying a homemade lock-picking device. When he first got caught uh, with the burglary tools, I started to have doubts then. It was a device to make keys. So, you know, he was he was not going to be a violent burglar. He was going to, like, fabricate keys to do burglary, you know? He was found up in his pocket. In With a key machine. Well, everybody makes mistakes. Um, I'm not going to dump him just because of that. Juan Carlos's apparent talent for petty theft was not the only surprising thing about him. As David and the Lozanos were about to learn, he also had a very loose relationship with the truth. At one point he says, he mentioned that he was not 13, that he had to say 13 because if not, they will uh, send him back to Colombia. And I go, what's, what's your real age then? He goes, I'm going to be 17. And I go, okay. So more or less, if it was the truth, because in reality, we don't know what's his date of birth is. The next revelation concerned Juan's parents, the ones he said had died back in Colombia. Well, journalists there had heard about Juan's story, and they'd done some digging of their own. Someone went to Colombia. I don't know who did that. He went to Colombia, to Cali, and started interviewing people so that's when they find out that his parents, they were alive. 
So it turns out that Juan wasn't an orphan at all. His mother was very much alive and still living in Colombia. Juan had always insisted he had no family and he'd been believed, playing the role of orphan boy so convincingly that the authorities, Jairo, even his own lawyer believed him. It begs the question, why did he lie? What was he so desperate to get away from that he'd risk his life climbing into the wheel well of an aeroplane? Juan quickly changed his story. He claimed that he'd been effectively kicked out of his home by his violent stepfather. Juan was gay, and that wasn't tolerated in the family home. His mother didn't want him. He may not be an orphan, but he'd been made to feel like one. He told another heart-wrenching story. The journalist in Colombia, though, thought that reuniting his estranged mother and son on live TV would make some compelling viewing. And so Juan Carlos was whisked to a Miami television studio. Some people in that kind of situation would say, no, I don't want to be on a show with people looking at me and, uh, you know, the stress of making an appearance on television. No, no, that's not for me. I mean, it was fine with him, you know. He, he never ex expressed or showed any reluctance to, do, to doing it. He was on the show, uh, the show de Cristina, I, be, I believe was the name of it, uh, which at the time was, you know, one of the number one talk shows in the Spanish-speaking community in South Florida. She got uh, his mother on a, a hookup, um, international hookup. So she was on the line. I think this was, you know, in the days before Zoom, and well, for sure it was, but. Uh, I don't remember the, his mother's face being there on screen, uh, so I only remember her voice. I've tried in vain to find that program, to watch it myself so I could observe Juan and his mother interacting, to see some actual footage of Juan when he isn't under arrest or controlling the narrative. I've talked to the channel, I've trawled YouTube, but that episode, it appears to no longer exist. So we'll have to take David's recollection of what was said. I don't remember her saying too much, but, you know, Christina was trying to engineer this uh, tearful reunion kind of thing, uh, and Juan Carlos wasn't having it. He said, come on, Christina was saying, forgive her, forgive her, because she, he blamed her for him getting kicked out by the stepfather, uh, that she didn't defend him. And so he, he was resentful about that. And Christina did her best to, you know, get him to say, oh, okay, mom, I'm sorry, I forgive you. And he wouldn't do it. He would not do it. My reaction to all this, initially at least, was real sympathy for Juan, a young boy feeling unwanted, forced to leave his home, abandoned or rejected by people who should love him. But in the US, sympathy for the stowaway was waning. His supporters were starting to question why Juan Carlos had hidden in an aeroplane and escaped Colombia if he wasn't an orphan. And why, when presented with a new life in the land of opportunity, he wasn't behaving like a law-abiding citizen. Was he really running from something? Or was he just a chancer looking to take advantage of the kindness from strangers? It's something that, ever since hearing about his time in Miami, I've wanted to find out too. 
Especially when it emerged that Juan did have family in America, an aunt in Miami of all places. Tired of the drama caused by the boy that he'd taken in, Jairo handed Juan a cross for his aunt to look after, though that did little to change his behaviour. Almost as soon as he was there, Juan stole a bicycle from a neighbour. Then he went missing for a long weekend, coming home in a pair of Mickey Mouse ears after apparently taking himself to Disney World in Orlando. With the number of black marks against his name increasing and David's efforts to get him a visa denied, Juan was deported back to Colombia. I mean, I couldn't stop it. You know, um, the Immigration Service can always choose not to deport someone, even if they're deportable. And um, for a time, that was like more easily achievable than, in, than it is now. And, but they were not willing to let him stay. My efforts were unavailing, and so he was sent back. The Lozanos drove Juan Carlos to the airport and waved him goodbye. He went upstairs and he waved. He looked at us and he went like this and went inside the uh, the plane. But I didn't see no remorse or anything like that. He was just smiling. I wonder what was going through Juan's mind as he waved goodbye to his American dream and the family that had taken him in. He'd lived a good life for the few weeks he'd been on American soil. He'd had a taste of the high life. Perhaps that got under his skin. Maybe it was addictive, something he needed more of. Because that flight back to Colombia was far from the end of Juan's American adventure. Just a few months later, he was back. New York City, JFK Airport, December 1993. The queue for immigration and passport control snakes its way backwards and forwards. The line all waiting patiently for their turn shuffling forward step by step. The sounds of a crying baby ripple across from the far side of the queue. There's little chatter. Passengers are tired, impatient, and bored. I am in the queue. I had come to New York by accident. My plane was meant to go to Medellin, but I didn't get off. And now, here I was, in JFK. It's like 3 a.m. and the rest of the airport is deserted apart from that queue. There's a restroom and it's empty, so nobody notices Juan Carlos enter the cubicle. So I step inside, look up, and there's those ceiling tiles that you can lift up. So what do you think I'm going to do? I climb in, slide along, I could see the air conditioning. Crawling above the ceiling, Juan travels about 50 meters, across immigration and over the arrivals hall. I wait a minute, lift up the tile and lower myself back down, step out in my shorts and t-shirt, next stop, New York City. I know what you're thinking. Unless you're John McClane from Die Hard, nobody's gonna break their way into America by climbing through the ceiling tiles. But that's what Juan Carlos did. I've seen numerous accounts, his words and those of others, which echo those claims. But even if the exact route has been exaggerated, the fact is that Juan did make his way back to America less than six months after stowing away in that wheel arch. And this time, he arrived in a wintry, snow-covered New York City. 
He had just the things he was wearing, a tropical printed t-shirt and a pair of shorts. Before anything else, Juan needed a change of clothes. I arrived at the freeway and I was walking and a man stopped. And this man was a priest. He told me to get in the car and took me to his church. They took a look at me and gave me clothes. They had given me a cassock to shelter me, which I wore. Juan then boarded a train, which took him from New York all the way to Miami. It could be true, it could not be true. I, I can't decide about that part. I mean, to be on the streets of New York in December or in January in a t-shirt and shorts, that part, hard to swallow because, it, you know, New York's pretty cold. You know? But that's what he said. I have a hard time believing that Juan had snuck through the air vents at JFK. But then I had a hard time believing he'd stowed away in the wheel well of an aeroplane too. Perhaps everything in the life of Juan Carlos is just a little bit make-believe. But what isn't in doubt is that Juan did make it back to Miami. And you won't believe who he bumped into. He was walking northbound on 22nd Avenue from Corway, and I was driving southbound. In a city of nearly half a million people, Juan Carlos had been spotted by Jairo Lozano. I looked at him, he looked at me, he waved, and I go, that's Juan Carlos. So I turn around, he goes, hi, Pop. And I go, when did you get back to the United States? He goes, oh, a couple of days ago. Dressed as a priest? Dressed as a priest. The priest's clothes apparently allowed Juan to travel for free. And now he was back. But it wasn't clear why or what he wanted. If you believe Juan, well, he just wanted to go back to being with the Lozanos. I was happy to be there. Bertha is a great woman. I never thought she was going to be my future mother. I just watched as she treated her children, as she treated me the same as them. I like that. Jairo, however, gave him little time. He'd run out of patience by now, and Juan wasn't welcoming the family home anymore. He was like the movie Catch Me If You Can. Because he's one of those. Catch me if you can. So Juan tried his luck at David's house. But the answer was the same there. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen now, because now immigration is going to be really harsh, you know. When you get deported, that's one thing. When you get deported and you come back, uh, you know, that doesn't sit well. Maybe he thought that I was going to uh, shelter him, um, but I couldn't. You know, I, I, I can't harbor an illegal alien. So with no roof over his head and nobody to shelter him, Juan was inevitably arrested. And while he awaited his fate, he was sent to a detention center. At 17, in a federal prison, what do you think I'm going to do? I talk to people, I learn things, I'm in a place full of criminals. What Juan learned was the art of deception. Not that he needed much teaching. I showed Christian, my detective friend, some papers from Juan's release. Christian, I've got a bit of paper here, right? But this one is his release papers, Juan's release paper from a prison in San Juan. And... I mean, take a look, but it says here that they believe that he was a German man educated at Eton in London and that he is a prince. 
It says that he is the son of the Queen Margaret of Denmark and of Duke Oscar Adolf II of Luxembourg. I mean, that that doesn't surprise me. What doesn't surprise me about it is that he he doesn't do things by halves. So he's not, you know... We'll get this. It doesn't, it doesn't reflect very well on the prison authorities because it says here that they deported him out of that detention centre and sent him back to Europe where he'd come from. There you are. See? I mean, he's an imaginative guy, that's for sure. In Europe, Juan began committing robberies in France and Germany. Why was Juan doing all of this? Where was it all going to end? Well, the next chapter takes us into perhaps his highest profile crime, as Juan moved into the hotel business, or at least the hotel robbery business. When the guest came back to the room, they noticed a couple hundred thousand dollars was missing from the safe. One of them looks at me and says, who the fuck are you? As soon as they started telling, you know, the details of the crime, I knew that this was something different. This is something new. But that's next time. Con Juan is a What's the Story original podcast series. It's presented by me, Daryl Brown. The words of Juan Carlos are played by Vidal Sancho. Music is supplied by KPM Production Music and Universal. The executive producer is Sophie Ellis. And our consultant, the man who kicked off this journey, is former detective Christian Plowman. What's the Story Sounds is the home of great storytelling. If you want to listen to more What's the Story content, you can visit our website at whatsthestorysounds.com. And you can subscribe to What's the Story Plus, where you'll find ad-free content, bonus episodes, and you'll get exclusive access to episodes and series before anyone else. You can find all the details on Apple Podcasts.